0: David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you. Till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him there, or stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad sent to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the Tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me. Or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest. The son of Ahitub and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub, And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Himelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in all your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. So ends the reading of God's word. May he indeed bless it. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, and we ask that you would truly speak to us. Would you please put your words into my mouth? Would you open our ears to hear your voice? Would your words go deep into our hearts? Would they affect our consciences? Would you encourage us? Build us up in our most holy faith. Help us to trust you in your sovereign care for us, even as we understand the true conflict in which we are part of, this conflict, this spiritual conflict. Protect us, we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord had truly been kind to David. He had provided bread and a sword for David at Nob. Regardless of David's intention of going to the priest, he had protected David at Gath, even though David had been the cause of ensnaring himself in the hand of the Philistines. But now David had escaped and he was alone and where where would he go? He was alone. He could not go all the way back to Nob or to Gibeah or even to his hometown of Bethlehem for no doubt Saul would be looking for him there to capture him and to put him to death, nor could he go back to Gath or any of the Philistine cities, for surely they would change their mind and put him to death. And so David answered that question by going to somewhere in between these two places, the cave of Adullam, a place, a cave that was, uh, many think, near the valley of Elah where David had fought with Goliath. Where God had been faithful to to him before, now God was being faithful and kind to provide him with protection and shelter. But he was still alone, at least for a time, till God was kind to him yet again. And his brothers, who heard that he was in this cave of Adullam, the Lord laid it on their heart to venture to find him, the brothers and all his father's household, and they came and they met up with David, and how sweet it must have been to David's soul. To no longer be on the run and alone, now simply on the run, but now with his brothers. And how sweet, even more so, was the reconciliation that he now experienced. The very sight where his brothers had scorned him with contempt as he approached the giant. Now they joined up with him and they followed him as their captain. But they weren't alone as they were there. Others started to show up. One, one day and a few more the next day, day after day, the Lord added to their number until there had been about 400 men with David. Now a small army. In fact, a larger army than what Gideon had when he fought the Midianites. But these that joined with him weren't The influential, the wealthy, the cream of the cream of Israel, they were, says, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul. Apparently David wasn't the only one who was suffering from the reign of Saul. His kingdom was not one that brought blessing to all of its people. There were many who found affliction under his rule even if they weren't the objects of his scorn. And they gathered to him. And so now with his group and David rejoicing to see these newfound men in his life, and he saw his brothers and he was reminded of his father and his mother. And he began to inquire how they were. And all of a sudden panic struck his mind. Oh no. Would Saul, what would Saul do to a father and mother. Certainly, Saul knew who David's father and mother were. Saul's favorite term for David was the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse, is the nameless son of Jesse. And Saul, in his vindictive and murderous plotting, would he go and round up and slaughter David's father and mother especially with his brothers gone. So David knew he must do something. And so he went from there to take his father and mother to Moab, of all places. Was David being crazy, like he was in chapter 21? I mean, in chapter 21, he went to the Philistines. He went to the town of Gath, the enemy city of the Philistines. And there they were ready to capture him and potentially put him to death. Well, Moab was an enemy of Israel as well. Saul himself had fought against the Moabites. How, how had David not learned his lesson? Well, in fact, this was very different. Because as it turned out, in God's good providence, God had been kind to David even generations before. Because both David and his father Jesse had Moabite blood Coursing through their veins. Because David's great grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. The Lord, in his wisdom, had caused this Moabite woman to come back with her mother in law and be married to Boaz, the man from Bethlehem, who was the great grandfather of David. And David knew this. There was no doubt family, but even family heritage isn't enough to protect. Somebody from an irrational king, he knew that from the life of Saul, would require the Lord's kindness in steering the heart of the king of Moab. But again, the Lord was with David, and the Lord showed kindness to David, and the king of Moab was favorably disposed to David. And he took David's father and mother and watched over them, provided safe haven. For David as he continued to go on the run and David went to the stronghold where he stayed for a period of time safe from the attacks of Saul but he wasn't there for long because in God's kindness he had not only provided him with people he had also provided him with a prophet of the 400 that had gathered to him these outcasts these mis these malcontents of Israel there was one prophet, the prophet Gad, one through whom God spoke to David. And he said, do not remain at the stronghold. Depart. Go into your land, the land of Judah. And so David did. And he went and into the forest of Hereth. Who was this prophet Gad? He actually has a very important role in the story of David. But Surprisingly, we see very little about him. He shows up here at the beginning of the story. The Lord speaks to David through the prophet and tells him to go out of hiding and go into the land of Judah. And we also see him at the very end of David's ministry. There's a situation where David calls for a census and it displeases the Lord. And the prophet Gad is the one whom the Lord speaks to David. And in the course of that dealings at the end. It is the prophet Gad who tells David, David, you need to go and buy this plot of land, this uh, threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, which becomes a very important plot of land because that becomes the plot of land upon which David's son Solomon builds the temple of God. And yet this Gad is barely there in the narrative. We know about Nathan Nathan the prophet is the one who approaches David when David has his fall into sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. But Gad is not there. Gad is called at one point David's seer. As though they had some kind of affectionate relationship, a close relationship. The one that David would go to. But we have good reason to believe that even this account that we have of David, this story that we have of David in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, could be in part written by this prophet Gad. At the the end of uh, 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, it refers to the story of David's life as the chronicles of Samuel the seer, of Nathan the prophet, and of Gad the seer. As though these are the prophets that give us this narrative of David's life. And so we get a sense that Gad could very much be like the New Testament Luke who is with Paul on his missionary journeys, who just kind of peeks into the story in the book of Acts, but is there to have an eyewitness account to the life of Paul and his ministry throughout the Middle East. So Gad may be a similar person who is there with David, observing, speaking to God, speaking on behalf of God to David. And he tells David, leave the stronghold, go into Judah. And so he does. Now, Saul heard that David was discovered, it says, and the men who were with him. This may be a a flashback a a bit. There may be a split screen going on here. The timing is unclear. But the, the image that we have of Saul at this particular time is a stark contrast to that of David. David is in hiding. He's hiding in a cave. He's on the run. So under cover of darkness. He's in fear for his life. Saul is out in the open in a high place. He's not running. He's sitting, sitting under a tree, just chilling with all of his guys standing around him, attending to him. He's sitting there with his trusty spear in his hand, and he's throwing himself a royal pity party. Help me understand what's going on, guys. Has David promised you something? Has he promised you money or position, fields, vineyards, a command? What is it? You're all conspiring against me. No, nobody tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Nobody tells me when my own son stirs up my own servant to put me to death, to lie in wait for me. Why are you conspiring against me? Talk about a hostile and toxic work environment. Here are the servants of Saul. And Saul is flipping the script. It is a classic behavior of abusive individuals. Where they turn the story around so that it is no longer they who are the victim, victimizer, but they are the victim. He says, Oh, it's you all are conspiring. It's my son who's conspiring. It's the son of Jesse who's conspiring. Everybody's out to get me. And all the servants, they've, they've been around, they've seen. Saul's actions, they've seen Jonathan's blameless behavior, David's blameless behavior, but they can't say anything. They can't even do the palms or the side eye because Saul has a toxic combination, a dangerous and deadly combination of an unchecked temper and that spear, which he has shown a very willingness to hurl at anyone who gets his ire. And so they just stood there, kind of Blankly looking at Saul in silence until Doeg broke the silence. Now Doeg, the Edomite, we saw him in chapter 21. This guy certainly seems ambitious. I say that because he is Doeg, the Edomite. Edomite, meaning a man from Edom. Edom, another one of the enemies of God. Edom, the descendants of Esau, the rival brother to Israel. But we were told that Doeg, the Edomite, is the chief of Saul's herds, the chief herdsman. How does an Edomite rise to the chief shepherd over Saul? I'll tell you, through cunning, through deception, through politics, through ambition. And he hears his master, and he hears the silence, and he sees an opportunity Because he was there, and he says, Oh, Saul, I saw David. David came to Nob. David came to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He gave him bread. He gave him a sword. He gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistines. He told Saul what he wanted to hear. Now, of those three things that he told them, two of them we know are facts. We know that Ahimelech gave David bread. We know that he gave him a sword. But the accusation that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him is an unfounded accusation. It's a plausible accusation. Ahimelech was the priest of the Lord. That's why David should have gone to him, was to inquire of the Lord for him. But if that's what Ahimelech had done, that's an important detail that The author of 1 Samuel left out of the narrative. It seems that Doeg's embellishing the story to tell Saul, yeah, you know what, those priests, they're they're against you as well. And notice what Doeg also left out of the narrative. Another important detail. He left out the fact that David came and was deceptive to Ahimelech, saying, oh, I am here on a secret matter from the king. He told me not to say anything. Doeg said nothing about that. That certainly would have changed the story quite a bit so that Saul might have thought, well, Ahimelech didn't know any better. But Doeg leaves it out because he knows what Saul wants to hear. And Saul heard what he wanted to hear. And so he he, he, he summoned Ahimelech and his entire household, and they came. And Saul begins to hurl his accusations. He says, hear now, son of a high tub, hear now. And Ahimelech, in humility, says, here I am, my king. He says, why have you conspired against me? Why have you conspired with the son of Jesse? You've given him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him so that you've risen against me. He's lying in wait. Why Why is everybody against me? Why now you? Beloved, ministers of God are called to say the hard things. They're called to say the truth, to speak the truth. And the problem is that We don't want to hear the truth. The hard things are hard because we don't want to hear them. And the calling to be a minister of of God is a dangerous calling because in saying the hard things, we become put in the crosshairs of the hatred and the animosity of those who don't want to hear the good things. And it's not our truth. It's not our message. We are merely messengers of God. And yet, as the messengers, the messengers are placed in the crosshairs. And there's an element that every one of us is called to that same ministry. We are all called to speak the truth and love, and it is a dangerous calling, and we all know it. And that is why we shrink in fear from speaking the hard things and saying the hard things. But in particular, ministers of God are called to do it, to set an example. that cannot be fearful. They must be courageous. They cannot be cowardly. They must speak. And that's what Ahimelech does, being confronted with this ludicrous accusation of a conspiracy. He says the hard things to this king. He puts his life on the line to speak the hard things. And he says, O king, Who is more faithful than David? He is your son-in-law. He is the captain over your bodyguard. He is honored in your entire household. Why would you possibly be thinking that he is against you? He is faithful. He loves you. And to the accusations of the bread and the sword and the inquiring of the Lord, he doesn't say anything about the bread. He doesn't say anything about the sword. He does say something about acquiring for the Lord. Our English translation says, seems to suggest that he's saying, Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? There's a bit of a translation issue there. There are some who might th- who think that he says, Have I ever inquired of the Lord for him? No, that's not it. Others suggest that what he was saying there was, if this was the is this the first time that I've inquired of him? Like, why would I why would I stop? Why would, why would I even question it? He's pleading with the king. Like, this is, this is, this is my, my task as a priest. He's laying his heart before the king, a- appealing to him. But of course, Saul is unwilling to listen. And Saul had already heard everything that he needed to hear. The accusation, he was condemned before he even spoke. The king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech. You and all your father's house. And he turned to the guard, and that's not a singular guard, that's the, the men standing around, plural. And he says, Strike down the priest. And at least his servants had the fear of God in their hearts enough to panic. They heard Hamlet's words just the same, and they knew that he was right, and they knew that these were priests of God most high, and that they dare not lift their hands. And so they froze, and in his rage, Saul was undeterred, even by their hesitation, and he turned to Doeg, the Edomite. You're in a bad place, brothers and sisters, if the only one on your side is the enemy. And he turned to Doeg, and he said, you strike down the priests of God, and you can envision a serpentine smile on Doeg's face. And him utter, at at your will and my pleasure. And he struck them down, 85 there, 85 priests. But he didn't stop there, for he went to Nob, and he slaughtered all of them. The city of the priests, the entire sword, man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. Beloved. Make no mistake about it. This is holy war. This is a kingdom clash. This is the same language that we saw in chapter 15 when God commanded Saul to go kill the Amalekites and to kill them, man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, put every one of them to the sword and Saul refused. He kept the best. He kept King Agag. But here Doeg and slaughters, the priests, the city of priests, the innocents, all of them, except for one. The son of Ahimelech, a son named Abiathar, he escaped, and he fled after David. And he found David, and he told David what Saul had done, and David is cut to the heart He said, I knew, I knew on that day when I saw Doeg, the Edomite, that he was going to tell Saul. It's my fault. I have caused the occasion for the slaughter of your family. He was cut to the heart. But then he offered this wonderful gospel promise. He says to Abiathar, he says, stay with me. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks you, or he who seeks my life is the one who seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Brother, this is a, a terrible and a dark story, a, a horrifying story of a slaughter of innocence, a slaughter of God's holy priests and the entire city of priests. And in reflecting on that, there's really three things that we want to kind of drive home that we'll kind of look at. One is a warning. One is an encouragement. And finally, a promise that we see in this passage that can encourage us as well. The first is a warning. And the warning is this, beloved. We must be aware that sin our sin, your sin, has a far greater reach than you and I care to consider. There is a tangled network of that our individual sin affects. It can be generational. It can be complex. It can be causal. causal. When we look at that slaughter of the city of Nob, Who do we lay the blame for? Who's to blame for that slaughter? Who's the cause of that bloodshed? Of course, we first look at Doeg, the Edomite. His was the hand that lifted the sword and thrust it through the hearts of the men and the women and the children and the infants. He was the instrument that executed it. But we can't look beyond Saul either. Saul had the authority of king to protect the people, to protect his priests, but he gave the order to go and kill. He abused his authority. Those of us in authority must be mindful of the effects of our authority to implicate others into our sin. But David also implicates himself. David, whatever his reason to go to Nob, could have been just to get bread and to get a sword. But he was there. If he hadn't gone, Doeg wouldn't have seen him. Doeg wouldn't have connected the dots between David and Ahimelech. Doeg wouldn't have gone back to tell Saul. Saul wouldn't have called Ahimelech and slaughtered the entire city. And David said, I knew, I knew. I caused the occasion for the death of your family. But also, beloved, we can lay blame at the foot of Eli, the priest. This is a fulfillment of of words that the Lord said to Eli, the priest, back in chapter 2. Eli, the priest who was wicked and refused to restrain his wicked sons, and honored his sons over over the Lord, and the Lord said, there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not come off from my altar will be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And, for all, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And here it happens by the hand of Doeg. And beloved, the point is this. We speak of the, 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 the blessing and the goodness of God's law. But we have to understand how wicked and awful and afflicting sin is. There is not a sin of yours that doesn't touch and affect the life of another person. But we blind ourselves, we tempt ourselves to think that because sin is between, is against the Lord and the Lord only, that it, my sin is only against God and God alone. And a 19th century Scottish pastor said it, said it great like this. His name was William Blakey. He said, Are you not sometimes tempted to think that, you, that sin is, sin to you is not a very serious matter because you'll get forgiveness for it. The atoning work of the Savior will cleanse you from its guilt. Be it so, but what if your sin has involved others? And if no atoning blood has been sprinkled on them... What of the youth whom your careless example first led to drink and who died a miserable drunkard? What of the clerk whom you instructed to tell a lie? What of the companion of your sensuality whom you drove near to hell? Alas, alas, sin is like a network, the ramifications of which go out to the right hand and to the left. And when we break God's law, we cannot tell what the consequences to others may be and how can we be ever comforted if we have been the occasion of ruin to any. And such was David's heart. He knew that those priests were slaughtered because of the occasion of his own sin. And beloved, some of us have seen that. Some of us have seen others affected by our sin. Some of us who have kids see our sin being mimicked and lived out. Oh, beloved, there is grace for that. There is redemption, and God uses our weakness and our sin, but we must be ever mindful. We must never minimize the harmful effects of our sin. Our sin can be generational and with its effects as it was with Eli, and consider the, the, the very different generations. There are two, two generational stories in this passage. There's that of Ruth and Boaz, the great grandparents of David, who David is able to find refuge in Moab and protection. And then there is the great grandchildren of Eli, who are slaughtered as a result of Eli's sin. Oh, beloved, we leave a legacy. We must be ever faithful to love the Lord with all of our heart, to set godly examples. The sins you think are innocent and harmless are by no means innocent and harmless, beloved. But there is grace. And through the forgiving blood of Jesus Christ, that is the good news of the gospel. Cling to him and walk in him, for in him there is life. The second thing we want to focus on is an encouragement, and it has to do with the composition of the kingdom of God. Salvation is for those who are in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in here we get a glimpse of its composition and because it, this story is truly a, a conflict of kingdoms. This slaughter of the priests is a slaughter of the kingdom of darkness striking heart at the heart of the kingdom of our Lord. But also David's kingdom is beginning to form. He has a small kingdom by the end of this chapter. Did you notice that? Here is David, the anointed king over Israel. He has a A prophet gather to him so that he has God speaking to the king. By the end, he has a priest with a linen ephod so that they can inquire of the Lord. And he has people. He has a little kingdom. His kingdom is going to expand and grow until it comes to full fruition. But notice the composition of his kingdom. It's not the best, the brightest, the wisest, the wealthy, the most influential it is everyone who is in debt, everyone who is in distress, everyone who is bitter in soul. Beloved, that's is—that's a picture of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come for those who are wealthy, but for those who know that they are debtors to the Lord, not to those who are full of life and health, but to the sick, those who need the healing redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. The Apostle Paul said, Not many of you were wise or influential by the standards of this world, but God chose the weak and the lowly, even those like us, so that he might magnify his glory and his grace. Oh beloved, are you hungry for the grace of God, for salvation? Do you know that you are desperately sick and in need of salvation? Jesus Christ came for you. Do you realize the great debt that you owe to a holy God because of your sin? Jesus Christ came to pay that debt for you, to redeem his life for yours. That's the nature of the kingdom. And if you feel low and insignificant, then you are a perfect fit for his kingdom because God gives grace to the humble and the lowly. He exalts them in in his son, Jesus Christ. Let that be an encouragement to you. And finally, beloved, a promise, a promise. It's right there at the very end. It's that gospel promise that David gave to Abiathar. He says, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Beloved, do you know that the conflict that you and I face in the midst of this world, this holy war that we are a part of, this spiritual conflict is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, praise God, we are united to him. It's, Jason read it for us this morning. He said, the Lord, Lord Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It is, he has created the occasion for us to be hated, to be persecuted, to be afflicted. But praise God for that, because that is evidence, that is confirmation that we are his That we are united to him. And praise God that he says, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life, seeks your life. The kingdom of this world rages against the Lord Jesus Christ. Against the king. Against the Lord and his anointed. And we who are joined to him face that affliction. But he promises that we will have peace and safety in Him, We have the strength and protection of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of gods. And that is a glorious hope, beloved. That's a sure hope. So let that be our, our charge. Let that be our focus. That we would stay with him, cling to him, hide ourselves in him. Let him be our stronghold. Not be afraid, knowing that he will protect us and provide for us, even to the very end, because he loves us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your sovereign grace for us. Thank you for showing us Jesus, even in the midst of this passage of such bloodshed, such horrendous affliction of the innocent. Lord, we thank you that you give us such gospel promises to know that regardless of how we feel in the midst of this life, that you are ever with us, you are ever watching over us, you are ever protecting us, even in ways that we don't see or know. Thank you for your kindness to us. Help us to have eyes to see all the ways that you are kind, day after day, to see your mercies and your grace to us. Lord, help us to grow in love and trust that you might receive all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.